0: Let me open with a brief word of prayer. Father, we ask now that as we consider once again your righteousness, that you would um, impress upon us the great need to respond rightly with our lives and that all of our living, all of our worship, all of our confidence, all of our proclamation would be rooted in who you are. So Lord, reveal yourself more to us. Help us to see more so that we can live in a way that pleases You. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I'll just briefly recap what we studied last Lord's Day with regard to righteousness, just to to make the transition. To say that God is righteous takes into account His role as governor and judge of all creation, doing exactly what needs to be done perfectly in every circumstance in compliance with his own good pleasure. That's what we mean when we say that God is righteous. We're we're talking about the pure and holy nature of God as it is displayed in the government of the world. And we noted how The words in Scripture, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, that are often translated as righteous or righteousness, and also the words for justice or justified, they're very similar, uh, related words. As a matter of fact, uh, they they look a lot more alike in those languages than they do in the English language. Uh, And very often as they are translated, the terms could be interchangeable. Uh, You might see uh, the righteous shall live by faith, or you might see the just shall live by faith. Well, it's the same idea, the same picture is being presented. It's the same word, but it can be variously translated. Uh, But if we wanted to try to differentiate between righteousness and justice, we could say that righteousness... Is the absolute moral perfection of God's nature. And then justice is that righteousness of God's nature coming forth in the way that God deals with the world and with men in particular. Uh, righteousness also carries the idea of being per, per, in perfect conformity to a law or a standard. Now, this doesn't mean that God uh, meets a standard outside of Himself. God is Himself the standard to which He meets. He is righteousness itself. And so then justice would be God dealing with men in a strict adherence or accordance to that same standard, which is God Himself. God is the judge. Or as we read in the New Testament, God will judge the world in righteousness by a man who is Christ Jesus. he, He is the standard. Uh, many people believe when they hear of god 's righteousness, uh, they think in their minds that that in the end well god will God will do right by me. I think God will do right by me as in in a way that I think he should i, I think he'll he'll deal with me fairly. no God deals with men according to his perfect standard, his righteousness, and that 's what we call justice so That's God's righteousness or His justice as they relate to each other. So now we come to consider our response to the righteousness of God. How should we live? If this is the God that we worship, if this is the God who is, then how should we live in light of that reality? If we use the language of our confession, we could say the Lord our God is most holy, that He works all things according to the counsel of His own immutable will and most righteous will for His own glory. So there's His righteousness. He works all things according to His will. That's the basis of righteousness. He's the rewarder of them that diligently seek Him. He's most just and terrible in His judgments, hating all sin and who will by no means clear the guilty. He will reward those who seek Him, but He will not clear the guilty. See, he's dealing with people differently based on their their status. He's he's righteous. If that's who he is, then what should be our response? How should we live? That's the question. So now looking at the, the introductory words in the chapter there, God is righteous and all his works are perfect. How then shall we live in response to this great truth? And he gives four areas of response. We should live righteously before him. We should live with greatest confidence in His providence. We should devote ourselves to worship and prayer. And we should proclaim His righteousness among the people. Again, all of that is because of who God is. We should do these things. So the first heading is, we, we should live righteously before God. And there are three texts here. We should live Righteously before God. Righteousness, if you're studying the attributes of God, many times a a theological work will have the attributes of God broken up into those incommunicable attributes and communicable attributes. Attributes which in in no way are uh, imparted from God to us, they are strictly in God. But then there are other attributes in God that are what are called communicable, that in some way God does communicate this this attribute to us. And righteousness is one of these attributes. It's a communicable attribute. So by God's grace, not only does God impute the righteousness of Christ to us, by which we're justified, that's true, But he also works in us to produce a righteousness that is ours. We then are actually able to live righteously. Now that doesn't go into our justification. That's not counted in our justification. But we don't. We don't because it's not included in our justification. We don't then say, "Well, there's no way that a believer can ever be called in any sense righteous." No, we can, because God imparts. This righteousness, He works it in us by an act of His grace, and so it sh- it shouldn't be strange or odd. The uh, our our legalism antennas do not have to shoot up when we hear things like a Christian should live righteously before God. That should not be strange, and we we don't have to always qualify that with well yeah but there's but there's grace no we understand that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone but that same god who justifies also works in us his grace and so this righteousness is a response of ours to god's righteousness so the first text is 1 john 2:29 1 John 2, verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of Him. Now when you see the language born of Him, we're talking about the new birth. This is the language of regeneration. Regeneration then leads to the practice of righteousness. If you see someone living a righteous life, truly righteous, the way God prescribes, in the way that God prescribes it, John says, this is how we can tell someone has truly been born again. It is an evidence of the new birth. Look at chapter 3, verse 7. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. Same, same point is being made. But here, notice he says, make sure no one deceives you. What would be a, a potential deception here? What's John trying to address? Well, it, it might be this idea that, well, if you've, if you've made a profession of faith or if you're, a, if you're a Christian, that doesn't really affect how you live. You can actually go on living however you please. As long as you've done certain things and, or filled out certain steps, A, B, and C, regardless of how you live, you're probably fine. John's saying, no, don't let anybody deceive you. Don't, don't believe that lie. Don't fall into that trap. The one who practices righteousness is the one who's righteous. That's how we know. It, the, the fruit is produced. Those who practice righteousness or live righteously are the righteous ones and they're like their Father in heaven. And notice the note that he gives here. He gives this, this, what I think is an important gospel qualification. To practice righteousness is to live according to the standard of God's righteousness. To live in a manner that conforms to His nature and will. It is important to understand that we do not gain a right standing before God by practicing righteousness. Rather, our practice of righteousness is evidence that we have been truly born again. A genuine Christian is not sinless, but he will not live out all the days of his life in sin and rebellion. If someone professes to be a Christian, yet his or her life is marked by unrelenting disobedience to God's Word, without repentance or divine discipline, it is certain that his or her profession is not genuine." And if you pay much attention to the internet, you know that Paul Washer is called a legalist and, a, uh, and all sorts of things for, for saying this type of stuff. He doesn't have a grace gospel. He's got a works gospel and all, all these kinds of accusations because people have believed that deception that, well, you can be a Christian and live however you want to and to go any further or expect any righteousness of life from a Christian is, is to lay upon them a legalistic burden that Christ doesn't lay. And again, that's it's a mixture of, of the categories of justification and sanctification and the fruit that's produced. And both sides of what he says here is, Very important to understanding the biblical gospel. Our righteousness is not the root of our salvation. It's the fruit. It's produced by what God has done in us. And the salvation that God works, that God produces, also produces righteousness because it begins with being born of God. It's a a new birth. We're new creatures. And so if you have a justification that's based on our righteousness, that's a false gospel. At the same time, if you're preaching a justification or a salvation that doesn't lead to sanctification, that doesn't doesn't begin with a change of nature resulting in a change of life, that's also a false gospel. You're preaching a gospel that doesn't change man. We need to make sure we understand that and, and hear that very clearly, because we don't want to fall onto either either side of that, or e- either ditch on the side of that road. The next text is Ephesians four, verses twenty two to twenty four. Ephesians four twenty two through twenty four. Let me, uh, let me just begin with verse 20 so we can get the full thought. But, if, but you did not learn Christ in this way, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him, just as the truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self which is in the likeness of God or which yeah which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And this this these 3 verses give us sort of instructions or guidelines as to what it looks like to live a righteous life. The first one is to lay aside the old self in verse 22. Lay aside the old self He says, in this context, the old self, or literally old man, refers to the person that we were and the accompanying sinful lifestyle that we lived prior to conversion. Or we we could say the old Adamic nature as it remains under the curse of the fall in Adam and that corruption that will remain in us since we really have become new creatures in Christ. We should and can put off the sinful deeds of the person that we used to be. Lay aside the old self. Other uh, phraseology that we see in Scripture to this effect. Uh, Romans 6, reckon yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. How how can I reckon myself that way? Because that's the truth. If you're a Christian, that's who you are. Paul is saying reckon yourself, uh, consider yourself, regard yourself that way dead to sin, alive to God. Romans 8, put to death the deeds of the body. Kill it. Don't, don't live in that way any longer. Romans 13, make no provision for the flesh. These are all the same idea, that, that the remnants of the flesh remain in us. You, you've got to cut it off, put it aside, regard as no longer living that way. You're not that person anymore. Lay aside the old man or the old flesh. Secondly, we are to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Renewed in the spirit of our mind. I think we could say that that reckoning of ourselves, that's an act of the mind. I must in my mind reckon myself dead to sin. Renewed in the spirit of our mind. This renewal of our minds, he said, is accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit working through the Word. In Romans 12, 2, we find a similar admonition. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The more we renew our minds in the Scriptures, and the more we cultivate the mind of Christ, the more likely we are to lay aside the old self with its sinful habits and put on the new self that reflects the righteousness and holiness of God. A crucial aspect of being renewed in the spirit of your mind is spending time. Quality time in the Word of God daily. You must be doing that. And that cannot be a rushed thing. You, you can't say, God, I'll give you 15 minutes to, to work. God, I'll give you 30 minutes. No, give, give yourself ample time. If the Lord makes it quality time in five minutes, that's His prerogative. But we, I'm, I'm saying leave room. Leave time so that it becomes quality time, so that your mind can actually be transformed as you read the Word. If you're like me, it might take 15 or 20 minutes just to realize it's Monday. A new day has begun. You're you know ridding your mind of all of the little things that are jumping in your mind as you wake up in the morning. It takes a while just to get through that before you can really settle down. Maybe you're not like that, but that's how I am. But you, it's got to be quality time in the Word. Don't think that you're just going to say, well, I'll read a few verses. God, I'll give you 15 minutes and then I'm going to go about by day. And then act like it's God's fault that your mind's not being renewed. You're not growing. It won't work like that. We have to literally be transformed as we soak our minds and our, our souls in the Word of God. Number Verse 24, we are to put on the new self. So we've put off the old self. We're renewed in the spirit of our mind. We put on the new self. He says, having put off the old self with its sinful deeds, we must now put on, cultivate, or adorn ourselves in those deeds that are appropriate to our new life as children of God. According to verse 24, whose likeness does this new self reflect? Remember, the, the subject matter is how should we respond to the righteousness of God? We should live righteously. Well, notice it says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So that new self images God. Salvation is a restoration of that which has been defaced by sin, the image of God in us. And so that new self looks like righteousness and holiness. He says in the note, God's character is the pattern according to which we must now live a life marked by righteousness and holiness, which is founded upon and flows from our knowledge of and submission to the truth. So, in light of God's righteousness, we should seek to live righteously. Number two, we should live with great confidence in God. We should live with great confidence in God. And there are four texts that He gives us here. Remember that God is perfect. Perfect. And God is the very standard of uprightness and righteousness. Now, having a God like that, not only governing the universe, but governing the universe we know for our good, with a special eye to His people, should we not be the most confident of all people? I think we should. We can rest in this. He says, the absolute righteousness of God is one of the greatest incentives to rely upon Him, even in the midst of trials. Because He is righteous, we can trust our lives to His every word and work. Why Why is it that there are people in our lives that we can trust, but we can only trust so far? Well, it's because we know that they're not perfectly righteous. There's something that we say, well, I'll, I'll, I'll give you this and this and this, but... I'm not going to leave you alone with this and this and this. But God is not that way. He's perfectly righteous. There's nothing that we have to, to shelter or hide from Him. We, we should literally be compelled to give Him everything. We, we can't even be trusted to govern ourselves and care for ourselves like God is. So the first, the first text is Psalm 92.15. Psalm 92, 15 says, To declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in Him. And he points out there in the note that very often the the word rock is used with reference to God, and it denotes trustworthiness steadfastness and strength. He is a God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He, Deuteronomy 32.4. He's righteous, and as righteous, He is a rock of refuge for us. God's righteousness is immutable, immovable, unalterable. He will always be righteous in all that He does, and so we can trust Him. Turn to Isaiah 41.10. Isaiah 41.10, this is one of the verses that we sing when we sing how firm a foundation. God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So God gives us these commands... Do not fear. Do not anxiously look about. You say, why? On what grounds should should I obey these commands? God says, I'm with you. I am with you. I am your God. I will not leave you. I'm always here. I will help you. I will uphold you. Why would we need to anxiously look around in fear if we have God? Not only do we have a God, but we have a God who's with us. But He's not just with us, but He promises that as He's with us, He's with us to help us. And He helps us by holding us up with His own righteous right hand. Let Calvin... Encourage you a little bit here. This is Calvin commenting on that verse. He gives a display of his righteousness when he faithfully defends his people against the contrivances and various attacks of wicked men. He therefore gives the appellation of the right hand of righteousness to that by which he shows that he is faithful and just. Hence we ought to draw a remarkable consolation. For if God has determined to protect and defend His servants, we ought not to have any terror because God cannot deny Himself or lay aside His righteousness. For Him to fail at keeping us, protecting us, defending us would be for Him to prove that He's actually unrighteous. He can't do it. He cannot do it. So we have confidence. We have confidence. If, if we don't have God, well, we have nothing. We have nothing. But we do have God, and so we should be confident. Next is Psalm 145, verses 17 to 19. Psalm 145, beginning at verse... Seventeen. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon him, to all who call upon him in truth. He will faithfully de- fill, he will fulfill the desire of those who fear him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. And the point that he's making here is that. Because God is righteous, we can trust Him. And a part of trusting in God or the the exhibition of our trust in God is prayer. And here we have in in these three verses the language of prayer, to call upon Him, to call upon God, and He hears our cry. If God has taken us to be His people, and by doing so has promised to never leave us or forsake us, and to always provide for all of our needs then again, it would be unrighteous for Him not to hear and answer our prayers. It's a part of what He's promised to do. Because He is righteous, we can pray with confidence. And we can pray knowing that He will always do right. He will always answer our prayers exactly as we have prayed them or exactly as we should have prayed them. But He will always do right. And very often we fear and struggle with, well, well, did I pray rightly? Am I saying it right? Am I asking for the right thing? God will, God will deal with that. God will answer according to His righteousness. And this is a great comfort to, to us who recognize that our prayers are often very weak. The, the, the Bible even says, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We struggle. But we don't need to take that to push us into this Mindset where, where we, we don't want to pray or we're afraid to pray or we're fearful. That we, if we say the wrong thing, that God's going to just wipe the whole thing away and say, well, come back tomorrow and try again. No, he, he understands all of that. He's already told us, you don't know what to pray for as you ought That's why He's given us His Spirit to help us. God knows what we need. If we ask for the wrong thing, well, God knows it. God knows we should have asked for something else. If we say, well, this is what I want, but Lord, not my will, but Your will, He's perfectly capable of saying, yeah, you're right, that was wrong, I'll do my will. And He brings us into conformity to Himself, but that, that should be an encouragement to our prayers. And then still in that, in that same vein is Luke 18, verses 17 and 18. In the New Testament, a, a very important section on prayer. Luke 18 verses 7 and 8. <clears throat> Let's just read the whole parable. Beginning at verse 1. This is important. This is Christ telling a parable. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. Okay. Now He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection otherwise by continually coming, she will wear me out. N- notice, he's not after righteousness. He, he just said, I don't fear God. I don't fear man. I'm not after righteousness. But she's just wearing me down, so I'm going to give it. So, th- verse 6, and the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for His elect who cry to Him day and night? And will He delay, delay long over them? I tell you that He will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth? The point is, if, if men will execute justice even for their own selfish ends... How much more should we be confident in expecting that God, who's perfectly righteous, will answer our requests and will bring forth justice through the prayers of His people? It, it's infinitely beyond. He does it for His glory and for our own good. And then he, he makes an important note here. The question, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on the earth is important. It proves that persevering faith and prayer are necessary for the appropriation of His promises. In other words, faith and prayer are always together. God is righteous, therefore we ought to trust Him. But if we're trusting Him, we will be praying all the more. So we could say, because God is righteous, therefore we ought to pray all the more. Yeah. We would expect in the parable for, for Him to say, when the Son of Man comes, will He find this kind of praying? He says faith, but they're really synonymous. That's what he means by faith. Will he find someone who will continually wear God down with their praying? Wear Him down. You say, well, God is impassable and God is immutable. Okay, that's fine. But wear Him down. Pray like He is not immutable. Pray like He is able to be worn down by your prayers. If a human judge can be worn down, Christ says then wear Him down. Whatever that means theologically, it, it means what it means. Whatever it means, God says, wear Him down. Try Him and see if it don't work. We, we, sometimes we feel like, well, I feel like I'm praying many of the same things every day. That's the point. Wear Him down with your continual coming. He does not reproach. God does not say, were you not just here yesterday? No, God says, you mean you've, this is the first time you've come back since yesterday morning? I expected you'd be here yesterday morning and mid-morning and lunch and mid-afternoon and evening and into the night and yet you only pray in the morning. That, that's the way God thinks. He wants us to continually come. And if we believe that He's righteous, we will. We'll exercise that faith and confidence in Him through prayer. If you if you're the type of person who struggles with praying, I don't even know why I would would qualify that with if. If you're a human being and you're a Christian, we would all say, I think, prayer is is one of those most difficult of, of tasks. Start by praying for help in prayer. Wear him down. Lord, I'm struggling with prayer. I need you to help. Wear him down with that prayer. Pray for help in prayer. So we are to live with great confidence in God. Number three, we should live a life of worship to God. A life of worship. The first text here is Psalm 96. Psalm 96 verses 11 to 13. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that it contains. Let the field exult and all that is in it. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the people's in faithfulness. Now, the question is, how, what should our response be? Well, if we assume that the response of rational saints should be anything like the, the what's described here, the response of, of irrational creation, then we would say that in response to God's righteousness, we should be glad, we should rejoice, like the sea, we should... Roar and exult, whatever that might look like for you. Sing for joy. Why? We have a righteous God. We have a righteous King and He's coming. He's, it, it's, his coming is as sure as if He's already left. He's coming to vindicate his people, to deliver His people. The creation we know is, is groaning in the pangs of childbirth until now because of its, of the bondage of, of our sin that is brought upon it. Waiting for the deliverance. The creation, it seems, is, is, is waiting with a more eager expectation than very often than the people of God are waiting with. He's coming. That should make us glad and rejoice. The reason we don't is because we think that the way things are right now are actually better than what it will be when He returns. Now, God is good. And we have many blessings and much to be thankful for. And very often I I thank Him for His blessings in that way. Lord, You've blessed me so much that it's hard for me to imagine that things could be better. And yet I know that it will be better. He's coming. And so we should worship because He's righteous and He will return for His people. Turn to Revelation 15. Revelation 15, verses 3 and 4. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, for all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. We, we don't understand it fully now, and it is hard for us to understand, but we, we need to, to notice and believe by faith that when the end comes, we will say, you're righteous, everything you do, everything you've done is marvelous and great. How do we respond? With worship, we praise God for His works. We ascribe honor to Him as Lord and as God and as the Almighty. We extol His righteousness, fear Him, glorify His name. And we can do this in song. We can do this in prayer. We can do this in conversation. If God is righteous, as we've seen that He is, And if this righteous God is our God, it ought to astonish us that we're able to keep silent about it. That we're we're able to hold it in at all. Our whole life should be a life of worship and delight in our righteous God. So live a life of worship. And then number four, we should proclaim God's righteousness to others. According to the Scriptures, not only are we to live righteously before God, trust in His righteousness, and worship Him for His righteous deeds, but also we are to proclaim His righteousness to all peoples both near and far. Turn to Psalm 40 verse 10. Psalm 40 verse 10 I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. So, how do we respond? We should not hide what we have seen of God's righteousness. We should speak, we should be vocal about it, especially in the congregation of the saints. Where else are you going to find a more comfortable reception? Now, we get nervous as we go out into the world. But if we're honest, a lot of us are nervous even in the assembly. Even amongst other Christians, we're kind of nervous about saying, lauding God before others. And that shouldn't be. This is great practice. More than likely, it's going to be met with a Amen. You, by your singing and by your prayers and by your... Amen. Join in the verbal declaration of God's righteousness. Everybody's not a preacher, but everybody can say amen. When you you say amen, you're helping me. You're saying that's what we believe. We affirm that. You are verbally declaring the truth God's righteousness. Psalm 71, verses 15 and 16. Psalm 71, 15 and 16, My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness. And the note says, Two great truths are presented before us. First, although we do not fully comprehend the sum of God's righteous deeds, this should not hinder us from telling others about what we do know. Second, we should speak much about God's righteous deeds and not our own. As the psalmist says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to Your name give glory. Would it not be amazing if we all could so mortify our pride and be so consumed with God that we would begin to ignore what men thought And we just spoke freely at all times in every situation as is fitting of the greatness and righteousness of God. Wouldn't that be something? If people said, I don't know what they believe at that church. What is a Bible church? I don't know what they believe. But every time you get around them, they just talk about God. Those people just don't stop talking about the greatness and the righteousness of God. Psalm 145, verses 6 and 7. Let's look there. Psalm 145, verses 6 and 7. Men shall speak of the power of your awesome acts, and I will tell of your greatness... They shall eagerly utter the memory of your abundant goodness and will shout joyfully of your righteousness. Again, recognition of God's righteousness comes out in verbal declaration, verbal acclamation. Even here, a joyful shout, to shout joyfully. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. We've seen this one many times. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might, let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord." He says, as we learned in Psalm 71, we are not to boast about our own righteousness or the things that we have done, but we are to boast in God's righteousness and His righteous deeds on the earth. And if any man would praise us, we are to turn that immediately back to God and praise God. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, how should we respond to God's righteousness? We do it by telling of His righteousness. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people." But now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are set on this earth to proclaim the moral excellencies of God to all men. We do this by our testimony, by teaching His Word, and by living a life that demonstrates His power. This is not only an obligation, but it is also a great privilege. Tell others. It is a a hard but rewarding labor to try to meditate upon the excellencies of God that all men actually recognize and understand in order to show people that they already know and that they already bear witness to and experience God's righteousness in the world. There are... Everybody, everybody uh, for the most part uh, respects, delights in, appreciates righteousness. Now, now we understand that anything that is good is from God, that all evil, anything that destroys, anything that hurts, comes from the sinful hearts of men. We we everybody recognizes the nature of wickedness, the nature of goodness. Everybody rejoices when evil gets its justice and when good is rewarded. People recognize this. People understand there is a a goodness and a rightness about the punishment of evil and the rewarding of good. People recognize that. It's all from God. He made us this way to glorify Himself and to glorify His righteousness. And if you can think of ways to bring this forth to people, to show them, look, you yourself appreciate the righteousness of God, you already have it in your ingrained in, in your being as an image bearer, you know it and then explain to them you yourself are not righteous. that which you appreciate you't li- you don't match up to that you don't line up to it especially in god's court, but God has provided a righteousness for us in the person of his son jesus christ and and Push them to that. That's a way that you can bear witness to the righteousness of God. We should tell it. Is it not your great desire to see people worshiping before God and the Lamb in glory who are the fruit of your personal witness? Not in a selfish way, like you're going to get badges or something. But can you not imagine... As, as, as Rutherford said, their heaven would be two heavens for me. That one is here because of my witness. We, we, I think there's something, there should be something in all of us that says, that would be really something. That would be wonderful. Surely your attitude is not, well, as long as I make it, I'm really just not that concerned about anybody else. No, that's not Christian at all. Every Christian wants to be used of God. And every Christian feels an urge in them, a pull in them to make known the excellencies of God to other people. We struggle. It's hard. We get nervous. We we make a total flop of it. We don't do it like we should, but we know there's something in us. As, as Washer himself says, when I sit down beside a person, a stranger somewhere, he said, I just start sweating beside a stranger because you just know. This might be a situation. In every interaction, is this a situation where a door is going to be opened? We think that way. There's this urge in us. We're we're, we're, we're recreated in Christ with that urge. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you can hog all that up for yourself and keep your mouth shut and clam up around everybody else. No, that's not what it says. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him. That's why He's made us His people. So we should tell it to people. If God is righteous, if He really is what we confess He is, then we ought to tell people about it. Let's pray and we'll be dismissed.